1: Today on the Everything 80s Podcast, what was New York City like in the 1980s with special guest Greg Young. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And let's get right to it, because I need to set the stage in a few ways for this special episode. So the other day I was watching the movie Wall Street, the 1980s classic with Charlie Sheen, and you can't help but notice the decidedly gritty appearance and tone of New York City. And then if you look at some other 80s New York movie classics, including things like Ghostbusters, Raging Bull was a little earlier, but, you know, Crocodile Dundee, even ones from the late 70s, such as Saturday Night Fever um, taxi driver. New York has again, this, this gritty looking appearance and the appearance of the city seems to be reflected in these movies. And it got me thinking about what the state of New York city was like in the 1980s. And it is important because as they say, New York's history is America's history. And that leads us to my very special guest, Greg Young, who along with Tom Myers is host of the definitive New York City podcast, The Bowery Boys. And Greg is the perfect guest to tell us all about everything New York in the 1980s. Not only does um, is he involved with the podcast, but also BoweryBoysHistory.com, which is really your one-stop shop for everything to do with New York. They've been featured in the New York Times, the New York Post, Brooklyn Magazine, the Travel Channel, the Village Voice, even the Wall Street Journal. So I've been a podcaster for a little while now, and you know I've hosted several different shows. And you would think that I listen to a lot of them, but I really don't anymore. I only listen to two or three shows consistently, with one of them being the Bowery Boys. And even though I've been podcasting since late, I started in late 2014, it's nothing compared uh, to Tom and Greg. Greg will explain a little more of the journey with the Bowery Boys podcast, but they are really podcasting OGs. Oh they've been doing this since 2007. They also have a book called The Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York. You should be able to get that wherever you get your books. They also do, you know, hosted walking tours of the city. Along with like all their other accomplishments, a few great achievements for Greg and Tom were winning the 2015 uh, GNYC Award for Outstanding Achievement in a Radio Programmer Podcast. That's the Guides Association for New York. And in 2016, they won it for Outstanding Achievement in Nonfiction Book Writing. The point is, if you want to know about New York, you turn to Greg and Tom, and we're really lucky to have Greg on the show today. So to further set the stage is my own connection with New York City and it requires just a quick story. So I'm if you've listened to the show I'm Canadian, but in 2005 I got a job coaching sports at a summer camp in northern Connecticut. I had never been to New York before but I had wanted to go my entire life. Now this amazing city was only 90 minutes or so away by train. Many of the staff I've worked with there come from Manhattan, Long Island, Queens, Brooklyn, Westchester and all throughout the New York area. And they've become some of my closest friends and people I consider family. So today, New York is like a second home to me. I'd only intended to go for that summer of 2005, but I continue to go back every single year. And I would spend at least four to five months each year in Connecticut. So that meant days off in the city, weekends in the city. At the end of the summer, I would also spend a couple of weeks there with friends. This is the first year I haven't been able to go back and Over the years, I'd go multiple times throughout the year besides the summer. So I've been in New York for Christmas. I've done New Year's in Times Square. I've been there in the spring, the fall, Thanksgiving. Like I've said, I've made so many close friends there that I've had the feeling of being a New Yorker and not a tourist. I know my way around certain neighborhoods better than a lot of my own city here. I've had friends that lived in the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, the Lower East Side, the East Village, everywhere. So I, I feel really connected to New York. And again, like it feels like home. It's not to say I don't screw up and lose my way around there. Once got on the wrong subway and ended up deep in Harlem. But what I'm trying to say is New York is a big part of who I am. And I've you know been there with my immediate family, including my nieces and nephew. My brother and sister-in-law got engaged in Central Park a few years ago. I've taken aunts and uncles around there. So like I said, it's weird not being there this year, but this show is a perfect combination of my own love affair with New York and the 1980s all rolled into one. So let's start out by hearing from Greg about his own journey with New York City, how he came to be there and the rise of the Bowery Boys podcast.
0: So I moved to New York in the early 90s when I was young. Actually, I was here for an internship. I grew up in Missouri, so I'm a transplant from Missouri to New York. Uh, I was here for one summer in 1992, Uh, loved it. Uh, My profession, I wanted to be a journalist, so it made a great place to be a journalist in the 90s, especially for magazine journalism. So I moved here officially in 1993. Meanwhile, Tom, who is my co-host on the podcast. He moved to New York the same year. I knew him already because my college roommate was uh, his sister. So he moved to New York to go to Columbia University. So we were just friends for a long time and all through the 90s. uh, We hung out and I had a great little apartment down on 23rd and Park, which I paid, I think for the first year, I think I paid like $300 or $400 a month and worked in a video store in my building. Yeah, it was uh, it was a different place back then. Uh, but so, yeah, so, you know, it took, you know, a decade to really feel properly comfortable in New York, but New York in the 90s, I thought, was, um, it was an incredible time to be here. And so, flash forward to 2007, and actually, um, I'm living in the Lower East Side, then at that point, and so was my friend Tom. So, Tom, um, in fact, helped me find my apartment, and we lived about three or four blocks away from each other. Now, the Lower East Side is one of the most historic places, more, most important historical places in American history, and... Um, what was really interesting to me is I lived in one of these old tenement buildings and my apartment was actually made out of two apartments uh, and so, you know, living in this building, I started researching the building and, and imagining the people who might have been living in this building and researching my block and it was, a, even at this time, um, it was a, a block with a lot of Orthodox Jewish facilities. There were some synagogues, there were some social centers, there would often be celebrations out in the streets, so I got to see a culture that I wasn't very familiar with. Um, I grew up evangelical Christian uh, back in Missouri, so it was striking, it also kind of piqued my interest in New York City history. Um, I began kind of teaching myself history in the 2000s thinking I was going to go back to school but what actually happened is in 2007 then I go over to Tom's place and I have a brand new Macintosh and it's that kind that was like white it looked like a toy almost and anyway it had GarageBand and um, Apple had just developed this concept called the podcast or I guess it had developed before Apple, but then they use it as a way to get people to sign on to iTunes and buy their digital music. That's essentially where a podcast came from. And so um, GarageBand, which came with the system, had a way to record a podcast. So one night I go over to Tom's and we had you know been talking about doing some kind of a radio program of some kind, and we didn't even really know the subject. So one night I go over to his house and and say, let's just record a show. So that first episode of our show wasn't even called um, The Bowery Boys. The name of our show is actually from, we take it from a 19th century street gang um, that kind of haunted lower Manhattan in the mid-19th century. So we had read Gangs of New York. We had, you know, I had read a ton of books and was obviously really invested in my the history of my neck of the woods, here, so to speak. So we started a show. We just recorded it. It was almost like no editing. It didn't. It wasn't very informative, but we got that out there and put it up on iTunes. And it was just like incredible to see that, like, oh, a few people are actually listening to this. So we started to do, you know, a few more. We did officially change the name of the show to Barry Boys, and then all of a sudden. They actually kind of featured us on one of their pages. I mean, this is like 2007. So, you know, there's not like a ton of podcasts. And the podcasts are very different, much, much different back then. There was a lot of like personal journals, people just going online and recording something like their thoughts for the day. I mean, you, ha- you did have, you know, legitimate shows like uh, Slade and NPR were doing some podcasts by that point. But it was by no means any kind of industry that. People could imagine that you could make money from so but I guess because we were by that point we had produced like seven or eight episodes and and we were putting some actual some heart and research into it and I guess iTunes thought that that was um interesting so they featured us on a page for like a month so all of a sudden the show actually got some traction so you know so that's 2007 um and flash forward to 2019 and that's essentially you know how it began
1: So whether you live in New York or not, hearing rent for like 300 bucks, I mean, even like considering inflation and everything is pretty astonishing when you know the, uh, (laughs) the rise of rent in New York City. But I love hearing the evolution and sort of the journey of Greg and the Bowery Boys podcast. So leading into the first question, it's how do we set the stage for New York going into the 80s? What was the state of everything coming out of the 1970s as the city, if you if you don't know, was going
0: through a real rough patch? So let's see what the state of New York was. Looking back at New York City history uh, and comparing the decades is, is a little odd, like the 1970s versus the 1980s. A lot of misconceptions about one get tossed into the other. For instance, I mean, New York in the 1970s, this was a very bad time financially for the city. And because the city had run out of money, it really could not maintain itself. And it could not maintain basic essential services for so many people in the city. Of course, the you know the subway deteriorated. And um, it's when it got a lot of a kind of sour reputation, obviously, even though this financial crisis had had really manifested itself starting in the 1960s. So, but what's interesting is plans are, by the 1980s, you know, the they've kind of figured out what they're going to do with the finances. There's a, a essentially the state steps in, there's a state agency called the Emergency Financial Control Board. Um, it's so funny because the, there's something intriguing about talking about the financial crisis of the 1970s. The way it resolves is a little dry and boring, but it it what essentially happens is is the is the state comes in this agency and helps get the city back in shape with some severe, you know, financial oversight here. But that gets a little bit better in the 1980s. But you have several years of a deteriorating city, so it does take quite a while for the city to kind of get back in shape. And, you know, one person in the middle of all of this is Mayor Ed Koch, who is overseeing the city and is basically the face of New York City in the 1980s.
1: So we're seeing where New York is coming from going into the 80s. But what's the socio-political landscape like going into the 80s? I mean, again, whether you're from New York or not, you you knew about the stories of the crime, and you knew there were certain neighborhoods you wouldn't go into. And the cities really changed. Whereas, like, if you go today and you're in Times Square, it, it's it's like Disneyland almost. But that wasn't the case back then. Or same thing with Central Park, you'd probably be cautious to go into it. And again, the the certain neighborhoods you just avoid. So what was it like with this crime that we heard so much about? Was it as bad as the 70s? Was it getting worse? Was it starting to turn a corner?
0: The crime rate in New York in the 1980s is worse, actually, than it was in the 1970s, which sounds pretty hard to believe when you look at these pictures of say you know the blackout from 1977 and you and you look at all of these like almost bombed out areas of the east village or south bronx but the 1980s you had the crack epidemic kind of pouring in again you had a city that had so much crumbling infrastructure by this Point, that in a in a kind of odd way, people kind of got used to, say, you know, subway graffiti. Although Ed Koch attempted to attempted to take care of that, and of course you had you know newspapers like the Post and Daily News, really kind of graphically presenting the most disturbing forms of crime that are happening in the city. But what's interesting is when you talk about New York during this period. It's so easy to look at the city just in terms of, oh, well, this is what the crime rate was. So everyone who lived here, it was like a terrible place. It was a it was a third world country. But that's not that's not necessarily true. Today, you'll find just as many people who look back on this period with nostalgia. You know, they wish they lived in New York in the 1970s and 80s, of course, because there was such an incredible creative output here in New York during that period. So, but I mean, of course, a lot of a lot of the art of that period was influenced by the culture and condition of New York City. So, it's a city that people it's a city that pe- people look back very fondly, but there's a lot of things that we do in New York today that you wouldn't do in the 1980s, uh, you know, the, the the regions of the city that you might wander around in were far fewer. Like there's a lot of neighborhoods that you would not have personally gone through for your own personal safety. You certainly would not have gone onto the subway with an electronic device. Thank We didn't have very many electronic devices, but I'm sure there were countless Walkmans stolen during this period. And then of course, you know, if you lived in a disadvantaged neighborhood, times were definitely tough.
1: So falling off this whole point and topic of the crime rate in New York, what was the role of Rudy Giuliani as it pertains to New York? Because he's an important part of the 1980s and What was his role as far as combating crime and even the the corruption and uh, the organized crime that was happening in the city?
0: Now, like I said, in the 1980s, if you're going to define New York City, you think of people like Ed Koch, you even think of people like Donald Trump. Rudy Giuliani plays an interesting role in the 1980s and something to remember about him is that During the 80s, he actually worked for the Reagan administration. But what's fascinating is in 1983, he becomes a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is, of course, one of the most powerful, almost independent agencies, a federal district court overseeing New York City and, of course, prosecuting all sorts of crime which are coming through here. And, you know, you're looking at the 1980s and you don't just have street crime. You also have a lot, a lot of white collar crime here, naturally, in the 1980s. And so he's actually the forefront of prosecuting a lot of that. He also influences the police crime show because he popularizes the perp walk, As a way of kind of intimidation, he probably uses it in ways that are unethical, because he would often arrest someone, take them on a perp walk, and essentially having someone filmed while they're wearing handcuffs or being taken away by police, but then later, like, charges will be dropped or whatever. It's sort of a way of legal intimidation, but someone else can look in that more deeply. What's really interesting is he also prosecutes many members of the mafia during this period. And um, I would say he's one of the leading figures in indicting mob figures in the 1980s and is really responsible for for the reduction of power of the original five families, which were these were these mafia families that basically, you know, held sway over the criminal underworld here in New York for much of the 20th century. So that's a great look at what
1: was happening in the city, uh, you know, from a political landscape, um, a socioeconomic landscape. But what was happening with the physical landscape of New York in the 80s? If you've gone to New York today, I mean, the amount of developments and constructions is is overwhelming. If you look at just like Billionaire's Row near Central Park, or even, you know, watching those shows like Million Dollar Listing New York and seeing just the excess and extravagance of some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Uh, But in the 1980s, what was actually happening with the physical landscape? Was there a lot of development? What was going up as far as the buildings and the changing look of the city?
0: You know, looking at just what it, like what New York looked like in the 1980s, is interesting because, I mean, there's always development that's happening in New York. New York is not a place that sits still. Even when things are bad, even when times are tough, um, there's always someone building a new skyscraper, essentially. What's interesting with the 1980s, um, you didn't have mass development as you would have in the 1990s. And really going forward, just like the city becomes just a gigantic construction site pretty much after that. Um, you don't have as much of that in the 1980s, but you do have some very significant postmodern skyscrapers going up. Um, in fact, I, for many years, I had a day job in the music industry, and our office was in the Chippendale building, um, which it looks like a, the back of a chair, uh, essentially. Um, I think it was built in 1984. It was a Philip Johnson building, and you know it's one of these buildings like many in midtown that have these gigantic at- atriums you're they are able to use zoning laws in a way that they could build taller but they have these grand public spaces trump tower actually which is right next door to um to the chippendale building also from the 80s is a kind of similar style and you'll go if you walk through midtown manhattan you see these grand atrium buildings you can pretty much bet that that was built in the 1980s. Um, there's also another building nearby called the Lipstick Building. So these are, th- these are kind of like the style of, of the day. But because you didn't have too much construction, you still had so many older buildings that were sitting around. Many of them were dilapidated. But you probably saw a lot more, say, you know, neon signs, diners with neon signs. You probably saw... A lot more 19th century buildings that were probably, unfortunately, cleared away and demolished with the question of development that would happen starting in the 90s. You did have a landmarks commission, though, and it was pretty powerful during this period. And, and you know, fortunately, they did protect uh, some buildings that were slated for demolition during this period.
1: So clearly so much is changing in the city, but I wanted to look at one institution that has been consistent in New York over the decades, Broadway. So I asked Greg, what was the Broadway scene like in the 80s? What were the big shows and what was the response of the public at the time? I was wondering if the 80s were a significant time in the history of Broadway compared to other eras and how it holds up against all those other legendary decades.
0: Broadway in the 1980s, you know, if an aficionado would probably not select the 1980s as being um, the decade with the greatest output. It's far better than the 90s. The 90s is kind of a a dead point in Broadway history, but the 80s does bring something that is kind of remarkable and changes Broadway forever. And that's essentially the almost Hollywood- blockbuster style musical with massive expensive sets. Um, the music will be will be great but it's not it's a lot more influenced by pop and rock melodies than music from previous eras. For instance, you have you have of course the onslaught of Andrew Lloyd Webber with shows like Cats. And the biggie, at least in terms of New York City, is the Phantom of the Opera. Now, actually, Cats played for a really long time, but I would say that Phantom changes the idea of Broadway tourism. Um, it becomes this thing that you need, to, you need to see because Phantom of the Opera will be playing for like 20 years. So it's pretty much like an institution in the same way that the Statue of Liberty is, right? So these shows that basically park themselves on Broadway and almost like transform into more of an experience than, say, going to see something that would be a little bit more serious and profound. This is also the decade where you get things like Into the Woods and Miss Saigon and, of course, Les Mis, and all of those shows have a similar aesthetic about them the music's different in all of those of course but interestingly to to me I look back at this and it, what it sets up it really sets the the welcome mat out for for Disney to come along and to launch their films into Disney shows in the 90s and to me that's what transforms the kind of the Broadway experience into something that's very different than, say, it might have been in you know the '40s, '50s, and '60s. I can only say from personal experience, like if do these do they sh- do they hold up? <laughs> I guess that's going to depend on your taste. I think many many people consider um, some older Broadway shows to be better generally i mean i don't i don't think anyone considers phantom of the opera to be the pinnacle of the musical form but i mean that was one of the first musicals that like i started listening to the cast album when i was in school so again it's because it has those kind of pop and rock notes to it and meanwhile i mean they would they would be side by side on broadway with more traditional revivals and musicals that were you know produced in with a perhaps perhaps a more of a, quote, Broadway music style.
1: That's a great look at what was going on uh, with Broadway in the 80s. And you forget that some of these shows, like Greg mentioned, like Cats and of the Opera did start in the 80s. You kind of just think they've always been around forever, but they did have to have this starting point. And this kind of leads into, you know, the next uh, question I have, which was sort of the basis of this show. Like when I mentioned I was watching Wall Street and looking at, Um, the tone of the city and, you know, then there's been all these other classic 1980s movies. I mentioned some um, also besides Ghostbusters and Wall Street, you know, later on getting into when Harry met Sally, the Muppets take Manhattan. So after the Broadway question, I was wondering what the state of entertainment was in New York, as far as movies and TV, had everyone abandoned the city for Los Angeles? Um, And I was just curious how he felt that the movies of the eighties reflected the tone of new york
0: movies uh in new york are in the 1980s are interesting and actually movies and television are interesting i want to lump them together because because today new york has a thriving tv and film industry uh you really can't walk down a street even now like just two days ago i i walked through um the film set for the new soprano sequel i mean new york in many respects is is a set uh certainly can be and it's it's set and waiting for a camera crew to come by um but that's not the way it was in the 80s tv was almost not being made here at all it had escaped to los angeles in the 1970s you had so many shows that were kind of set in new york but they were all filmed in the 1970s and you know even if you think about like Friends and Seinfeld, even in the '90s, it's like it's still like they're all being produced out in L.A. Like today, those shows would almost certainly be produced in New York. Um, But the but the TV industry had fled, with the exception of um, the Cosby Show was actually filmed here because Bill Cosby was a New Yorker and didn't want to leave. And um, then by the late '80s, you get things like uh, Law and Order, but the. film industry actually does still thrive here because, of course, you can't really fake New York in a, in a big Hollywood motion picture. And, of course, Hollywood had so much money that, of course, they weren't afraid of New York and filming in New York. And then for for many projects, you know, New York, you know, that run-down look of new york in the 70s and 80s directors could actually work with that in intriguing ways and keep in mind and this is extremely important a lot of the the new wave of directors from the 1970s you're talking about martin scorsese and, and woody allen john cassavetes uh, francis ford coppola i mean they're all from new york right so they all basically position themselves as major directors in the 1980s and they influence what gets made and so of course New York is going to be you know, in their thinking a lot and so what happens is that New York becomes kind of a character and when you see something like Ghostbusters, right? I mean that movie would not play the same way if it was say in LA of the 1980s right? That um, there's something about the quality of how New York looks that like adds to the story and so you know you could not make that movie without without new york i don't think um what's interesting is by the end of the decade as um new york's reputation kind of begins to improve i mean still people across the country think new york is this dangerous dirty place in the 1980s and that's why a lot of crime thrillers are set here and filmed here in the early 1980s. But by the end of the decade, actually, you have things like Moonstruck and When Harry Met Sally. And so, you know, there's, they're starting to sell New York a little bit different uh, by that point and, and present a different angle of New York, I think, which is kind of interesting. Back to television, because I do think that this is pretty important, is Law & Order Changes everything and even affects the film industry in my opinion because um, Law and Order begins filming here. It films on the streets of New York. People have not actually seen that in a crime show for many many years because again, it's all filmed out in California, and um, that adds so much to the credibility of that show and makes it so watchable. On top of it, what they do and you, you still had a thriving Broadway. You had, you know, thousands of actors here. So what Law & Order was able to successfully do is hire those actors, you know, for their weekly shows. And so, and it was much cheaper to film in New York back then. So I think that is the show that kind of causes a revolution. Again, it's around here in the late 80s, early 90s that all of this happens.
1: I think the big takeaway there, which again, something I'd never thought about or had occurred to me is the rise of those directors coming out of New York City and influencing the way films would be made with their own influence of New York kind of being reflected in their projects. That's a great insight. And I'm embarrassed to say I never saw the movie Moonstruck until like a few days ago. And I don't know how I ever missed that one. It's phenomenal. (laughs) So, keeping with the entertainment theme, and it's a it's a big question. Uh, but what was the music scene like in the eighties? Because you have this change in culture, and you've got these you know new styles of music coming out, and we're getting into the MTV era, and people are being exposed to new kinds of music. So, again, a big question, but just wondering what was music like in the eighties in New York.
0: I mean the music, the music scene of the 1980s. I mean, so much of the music that I listened to as a kid came from New York in the 1980s, and even so much of the music that is in that I listen to today is influenced by those same sounds and those same artists. And you know, I think that people, you know, the 1970s is, of course an important decade in music history um, because of punk and rock and roll, but New York in the 1980s fosters a lot of different kinds of music and really becomes a forefront for that, and a lot of it is tied, of course, to New York's nightlife so so you will have rock clubs, but you'll also have hip-hop music, you'll also have house music, and the, the birth of rave music, and This is all developing in a thriving nightlife scene that is decadent and out of control and also something that, you know, is a lot of people really look fondly at because we don't have a city anymore that would allow a lot of that to take place. You had the Paradise Garage, which was this incredible place for um, really underground dance music was Often a place for young gay people to go, people of color to go, one of the most influential musical spaces in New York. And I should add, by the way, that music and art and culture generally in New York is being so affected by the AIDS crisis. And so a lot of the art that comes from New York is made by people who would later die Of AIDS or people who are invested in the cultures of New York that are being ravaged by this disease during a period when a lot of, when we didn't know much about it and the uh, the government was more or less like not paying attention to this seriously. So that I think is why there's a lot of richness to the music, especially of New York in the 1980s. You know, you also can't move away from the 80s without, of course, talking about people like. Madonna and uh, transplants who would come to New York because, of course, New York has already has this reputation. People like Madonna who come here and absorb what the culture is doing and, of course, then mainstreams it. And so a lot of like underground New York culture um, gets reflected into popular culture through people like Madonna.
1: That is a great deep dive into the state of the music scene in New York. And again, tough to touch on because that topic can be a podcast all by itself. Like It's such a big area um, to cover. And again, that interesting thing about New York City's history kind of being America's history and then those people, like you mentioned, coming up like Madonna and you look at Cyndi or in the rise of hip hop and, you know, Run DMC and all that. And the the style and, and the creativity they had was now going to a worldwide audience. And it's all coming out of this, you know, relatively small little city. That's how influential culture and art and music and, and everything based in New York is. So we'll start winding down here. And I had a last couple of questions for Greg. And one was, what is his favorite New York City-based 1980s movie, and then if he only had an hour, like he could just be magically transported anywhere into New York uh, at that time and just has an hour to hang out and chill, where would he go?
0: My favorite New York movie from the 1980s is After Hours by Martin Scorsese. And that is because, you know, it's it's not one of his best-known movies, you know, you'd I mean, Goodfellas is a great one to watch also, where New York is featured, I mean, obviously, Taxi Driver from the 70s, but After Hours focuses on a neighborhood that you don't see much uh, normally in, in movies, and in this movie, it is where the whole thing takes place, and that is Soho, and it's Soho in the 1980s, which is incredibly fascinating, it's this old industrial warehouse district all these beautiful cast iron buildings that get modified and and changed in the 60s and 70s when all these artists uh move in and so there's something very for forlorn about soho in the 80s but also very intriguing exciting extremely edgy um, with art galleries and all sorts of alternative clubs that would be around here. And so our main character um, basically just gets thrown into essentially some sort of bizarre fantasia. And um, I don't want to say much about the plot because in a way, not knowing anything about this movie is the pleasure because you're taken on a ride. <laughs> and you meet all these really fascinating people. It has Terry Gar, Rosanna Arquette, uh, Catherine O'Hara. Is in, is in After Hours. So that was the movie that I, I go back to again and again, and I feel like it holds up very well. And it also, like, New York feels very exotic. Something about it reminds me of The Wiz um, in the sense that it's sort of like it's a New York landscape where you kind of re- recognize certain aspects, and yet it feels so um, otherworldly. Um, another good one is The Warriors, um, an early '80s movie, um, where New York is just very dynamic. It's a very campy and very fun movie. There, if I had, if I could be transported hmm, anywhere for an hour in the 1980s, I am going to say I would go to the limelight. Is a dance Club, um, which opened in the 1980s, um, would become very infamous or renowned as part of kind of the club kid movement, um, which starts like in the early 90s, essentially. I mean, it develops kind of into something else. But what's interesting here in the 1980s is, you know, it's influenced a lot by the Studio 54s of the world. It's a very kind of red rope type of place I certainly would probably never be asked in because it would be very exclusive of, of you know every famous person had their birthday party here at the at the limelight and I don't know I mean it would just be to sit back and observe for an hour all of the famous faces and the crazy fashions and the music actually I mean that's just that's that's a very indulgent answer to this question i guess i would also perhaps say it might be kind of interesting to walk the boardwalk of coney island uh, in the 1980s i imagine that it's not too different but uh, i i just feel like that would be absolutely heavenly plus i'm sure all the food is like 50 cents so <laughs> that's a good that's a that's another thing that recommends itself is the prices of everything
1: Okay, so the last thing is where you can check out the Bowery
0: Boys and the podcast and everything to do with that. So our our podcast Bowery Boys podcast you can find everywhere you get your podcasts, and we have hundreds of episodes, literally hundreds. And uh, so you can check out our feed, and it doesn't matter like you could it doesn't matter what kind of history. You're into. There's going to be at least five shows. I think that you'll find of interest because we really do every single aspect of life in New York. I mean, we've done, you know, we've done Wall Street. We've done the Civil War draft riots. We we do a lot of shows on the Revolutionary War, but we've also done shows on like Lauren Bacall, you know, <laughs> that that type of thing. So we're kind of all over the place, and we do have a lot of shows on specific movies we have a a separate thing called the bowery boys movie club that we give to our patrons uh on patreon.com and um some of those like the older shows we release them to the regular feed so people can enjoy them so um we actually have a show uh, on ghostbusters and on moonstruck um so you can check those out and finally um our website's boweryboyshistory.com and we have posts, and images that relate to all of the shows that we record. And there's all a bunch of extra stuff, too. There's a bunch of extra articles uh, that I've written that sort of look further into New York City history. So thank you. This has been great. Uh, Have a great New York week, whether you live
1: here or not. So if you're even remotely interested in New York City, check out the Bowery Boys podcast and their website. And I guarantee – I've heard every episode and I guarantee there's stuff you will find and love and new things that you will discover. And so if you – I assume you're listening to this episode on a phone um, and your podcast app of choice so you can easily just go and find – Bowery Boys podcast to check it out. But if not, if you're listening on, if it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I'll have links to uh, their website and their Patreon if you want to go and support the show uh, even more. So click those and check them out. But like I said, just if you're on your phone, just go search Bowery Boys podcast. So I want to thank Greg for taking the time to come on and just give us some great insights into New York City, It's a big thrill to have him on. Like I said, this I've been listening to his podcast since way back. It's probably my favorite. And um, as much as I think I know about New York, I'm always learning new stuff from Greg and Tom. So I feel really fortunate to have him come on this show. So I hope you enjoyed it. Again, check them out. Check out the Bowery Boys. Uh, if you like this show, you know, make sure you subscribe again wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.